Hey everybody, welcome to class nine of the Book of Lost Tales class, um, and our uh, our penultimate class here. Um, okay, good. Um, I have two announcements uh, before... I'm sorry, I'm saying good because Luke just confirmed something that I was about to tell you about in my announcements. So sorry, I was thinking aloud there for a second. Two announcements here. First, um, our next class is ready to go. As you may remember, we elected two classes at one time. Last time, Book of Lost Tales was the first one we have uh, we have done. Our penultimate class for the first year of the Mythgard Academy and our final class is queued up and ready to go. Uh, almost right after this we'll skip one week um and then we will in the last week of uh, july we will start up dune by frank herbert and i just wanted to show you the official web page for the dune class is now officially up um so uh you can get here the uh whole full class schedule with all the links one thing you'll notice right away is that um i had to shift the night of class so of course we've been meeting for the mythgard academy on tuesday nights uh for time immemorial or at least for several months um but uh, I'm going to have to shift that to Wednesdays because Tuesday nights now uh, at the normal class time is going to conflict with one of our regular Mythgard lectures. Um, uh, uh, Doug Anderson, uh, the uh, the editor of the you know the the author of the Annotated Hobbit, um, uh, is uh, teaching a class, uh, a course uh, sort of based on his um, Tales Before Tolkien book. If any of you are familiar with that, um, that is what he's doing is he's doing a survey of fantasy literature before Tolkien. Everybody knows that Tolkien, you know, played this monumental role in bringing fantasy into the mainstream um, of literary culture, but of course he didn't invent it. And there were lots of other fantasy writers that really influenced him um, and that came before him. So uh, Doug Anderson is going to be teaching a class at Mythgard this year um, going through basically, you know, sort of the history of the fantasy genre with a special focus uh, of the people in the, in the, in the couple of generations before Tolkien. Um, that's going to be an awesome class, and it's going to be meeting on Tuesday nights, so we're not going to meet on Tuesday nights, so we're going to be meeting um, on uh, Wednesday nights for the Mythgard Academy, for the, for the, for the Dune class. So the first day, of, I, I think I said before, the Tuesday the 29th uh, was going to be the first day of the Dune class, I was pretty close. Wednesday the 30th, it turns out, is going to be the first day of the Dune class. So... That's uh, uh, so again. You can see that you can get all the links. Um, it's going to be a long class. It's a twelve-week class because it's Dune, man. I couldn't uh, make it any shorter than that. Um, uh, it's there's a lot to cover. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's already going to be pretty um, uh, pretty pretty. Um, densely packed uh with stuff plenty of stuff to talk about uh in there so um and i also just wanted to mention while i'm talking about it um i have linked to a, a recommended edition of dune that i'm using um uh the one advantage of this uh of this volume is that it's enormously and actually almost uh inexplicably fat um, <laughs> this volume is like fully almost twice as many pages as the uh, the twenty fifth anniversary edition I I, I also have, um, but uh, so I don't quite know why they spaced it out that way. But anyway, they have so it's now even a more impressive volume than it was before. Um, the reason that um, I had to recommend a title is that my one complaint about Dune I love Dune, but my one complaint about it is that the chapters are not numbered. 
So when you're trying to make reading assignments, Frank Herbert was not thinking of the people who are going to be teaching this book in class later on down the road. Um, by the way, I have the same complaint about George R. R. Martin. His chapters are also impossible to designate. You know, when you're trying to assign, you know, read, uh, you know, until like the fourth chat, the fourth time Daenerys comes. It's, it's awful. It's awful. Um, so anyway, so I needed to have a a, 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 a sort of standard edition for uh, page number. Um, references. So this is it. Anyhow, okay. Neil asks, um, uh, you know, is, has noted um, uh, that uh, that we don't have uh, that I don't have a special class for the adaptations uh, on the uh, on the list. That, that's that's true, Neil. I don't. It's not that I intend to shirk on that. Of course, as you know, I really like talking about the adaptations. There are two reasons why I didn't work it into the schedule from the beginning. The first reason is that there are really only two Dune film adaptations that I'm familiar with, um, one being the old movie with, like, Sting and Patrick Stewart in it. Patrick Stewart improbably cast as Gurney Halleck, and uh, uh, and Sting delightfully cast, um, as I recall, as Fade Rautha. Um, that movie was dreadful, as I recall, though I haven't seen it in many years, um, there was also a miniseries version of it, which was um, much, uh, uh, much nicer, um, much more interesting. I thought, but it's it's it's, I, I as far as I know, difficult to get a hold. Of. I haven't been able to find it, um, so it's going to be hard to 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 really sort of get it and see it and and uh, look at it together, and. Uh, uh, and and talk about it. <laughs> Tom Hillman confirms that the movie is still to this day dreadful. Um, I, you know, Tom, I suspected as much. I was uh, fairly young and impressionable the first time I saw it. I believe I was in high school, um, but uh, I am sure it has not changed. Um, but uh, anyhow, so um, so but you know now, despite the fact that uh, the um, the film version is pretty bad. I'm still willing to talk about it. I mean, the fact that the movie's bad doesn't mean it's not interesting to talk about, you know, sort of the adapta the adaptation choices that they've made. Um, so we can do that, Neil. Um, and I'm thinking maybe we can work that into the last, you know, the font if we've timed that last Q&A session. If people are really enthusiastic, maybe we can, sp you know, sort of schedule an extra bonus session um, to talk about that kind of out of the, you know, the sink of the rest of the class. The other reason, Neil, that I didn't put it in the schedule is that I was already feeling guilty about scheduling 12 class sessions, and I didn't want to schedule a 13th. Uh, so, anyway, um, th those are those are in full my reasons um but you know i don't want to totally neglect it we can still um we can still have a have a shot at it um anyway um my other so anyway so i do uh, i do recommend this uh uh to you and you know definitely sort of send the link around you know i want i, I know that you know dune is something that um you know, they're gonna, there are a lot of people who are huge fans of Dune who might not be Tolkien fans, and you know, thus who might not have, uh, um, you know, sort of uh, attached themselves to our admittedly slightly Tolkien-heavy Mythgard Academy offerings so far. Um, so please do spread the word among people that you know who might be interested. It would be fun to uh, uh, to get some new people uh, 
involved. See, exactly. Alyssa is now pointing out that I would have to do 14 classes for the sake of, of, uh, of uh, the lucky number. Uh, see, Alyssa, exactly. That's ex- I was like, no, I don't want to go there. I'm just, I'm just not. I'm just not going to go there. Uh, so yeah, that's, that, was, that was also part of my, that, that entered into my thinking there, Alyssa. Um, anyhow, so anyway, as I say, do spread the word, let people know, send people the, you know, the link to the, to the page and, you know, and, uh, you know, emphasize, you know, those of you who are here, you know, who are, um, I feel pretty confident in saying everybody who is either attending live or listening to the recording of the eighth class on the Book of Lost Tales, part one, is, you know, somebody who's, uh, you know, sort of come along on the ride with us, uh, you know, on the Mythgard Academy so far, you know, so you guys can, you know, sort of, tell people about the kind of thing that we do here and um you know this is not just a a sort of a you know a superficial discussion for newbies you know we'll be we'll be doing a lot of uh and and i love dune i've been reading dune since i was in high school um i had a wonderful english teacher in my junior year of high school um who is one of the you know the chief influences of my later career uh, and uh, Dune was one of the two books that we read in her class that really sort of put me in the uh, um, in the direction of seeing how much fun it could be to do interpretation of literature, which I'd always uh, considered a bit of a drag prior to that. Um, so uh, anyway, so I have great affection for Dune, uh, and my own relationship with it goes back uh, quite a ways, and it's been a book that I've come back to not quite as regularly as Tolkien. I don't read Dune every year, but uh, um, but I have come back and read it at least every few years uh, ever since. So I'm pretty familiar with this book and and uh, and enjoy it a lot. Anyway, um, I I also oh and. Um, Okay, sorry. Other announcement. My other announcement is uh, Mythmoot. Um, we uh, the uh, Mythmoot is now the registration is officially open as it's been for a little bit now. Um, and I just wanted to also draw your attention to the fact that the call for papers has officially been uh, released. So if you go to the Mythmoot page again, if you just go here to the Mythgard Institute site and you click on the Mythmoot link here. Um, it will take you to the Mythmoot page, um, and you can get the call for papers. Um, you get the information on the registration, and here's the link to the... There's the information on the call for papers right here, um, and the email address uh, to send proposals. I know that um, uh, a lot of you... um, uh, A lot of you have had a lot of really interesting stuff to say. Um, I I believe there will be at least one paper, uh, and possibly more than one, that has already been submitted for uh, uh, for consideration, which has grown out of you know discussions that we've been having here in our Mythgard Academy classes, which I think is great. I know that many of you uh, have a lot of really interesting things to say, so you know we would certainly be interested to uh, to hear um, proposals from you guys. So okay, those are the those are my my two announcements, and now we will we will move on. I'm trying today to. Um, uh, finish up um, everything else. Um, oh, wait, Brian asks, uh, is it possible to write a paper and not go to Mythmoot by any chance? <sighs> That's certainly not the plan, Brian. Um, I mean, it's it's sort of conceivable that if you, you know, if you were to, like, for some reason not be able to come, you know, to, to, to sort of plan on coming and, and, and discover that you're not going to be able to come, you know, we might be able to, you know, have somebody read your paper for you or something that's sort of conceivable. Um, 
but like a you know sort of planned absentee papers is not because re- in the, the the design of it is that it's a conference right you know we all get together and we uh, you know people share their work and we discuss it um, you know it's not to say that we can't discuss the work of somebody who's not there but it's not quite the same um, so um, I you know I would definitely certainly encourage everybody who um, who, who who can come come uh, you know so that's uh, that's that's certainly the idea there. Um, Richard asks, "Is there a particular theme we're looking for in the papers?" Um, there are some here. I just have taken it. No, I didn't. I closed it. How clever of me. Um, there's some information. There's some suggestions there, uh, but the, we're really we're we're uh, relatively uh, omnivorous. Um, you know, pretty much anything related to imaginative literature. Um, we're you know that is fantasy science fiction we're pretty receptive to it is certainly not explicitly a uh, a, a or, or exclusively rather a uh, a Tolkien paper um so um uh so yeah yeah um yeah yeah Anyway, so yeah, by all means, please do come. Uh, yes, and I get, I know that uh, uh, DMA from Alaska is coming already. DMA, we're excited. Uh, you are our most. Uh, you are our most. I, I think uh, there may be a year in which somebody comes to Mythmoot from further away than you, uh, but I think you have uh, you have sealed up the uh, most total miles traveled in your career to get to uh, to get to Mythmoot award. I don't think anybody's going to ever beat you on that one. Uh, <laughs> okay, great. Oh, good. And Richard's coming. Excellent. Very good. Um, so you know, I hope to you know I would love to to meet many of you. Mythmoot has been such a great time uh, to get together, and the kind of thing you know the the the, the vision for Mythmoot is very much like, unsurprisingly, very much like the you know the the vision for Mythgard and what we're doing here at the in the the Mythgard Academy to sort of take you know interesting, stimulating, in-depth intellectual discussion of the of of works of literature and and also other works, you know, film and 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 whatnot, um, and uh, and and really kind of open it up, you know, to 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 bring people into that, you know, maybe who might normally not do that, you know, I think that there are, there are a lot of people who might not normally kind of go out on the scholarly uh, conference circuit who still have a really good time when they come to Mythmoot um, and can be really engaged in those things. So um, um, uh, anyway, that's, uh, uh, that's certain. It's, it's, been, it's been great fun for the first two years, and I'm really looking forward to the third one here. Um, <laughs> yeah, Dmay says the only word she wants uh, is to beat me in Riddles in the Dark again. I don't know, D-May. Uh, I think uh, I think you might be pretty safe there. Who knows? Maybe I'll come out of nowhere this year. Who knows? Um, anyway, okay. Um, back to the Book of Lost Tales. Um, I want to start to start off. I want to think um, about the textual situation of the Lost Tales. That sounds kind of dull, doesn't it? I realize that that's not the most exciting intro I could possibly give. And now, textual matters, right? But um, uh, but really, no. This is this is this is this is very interesting stuff because I think from this, I want to I want to you know take, take the moment of of looking at Gilfanon's tale at the end and some of the commentary that Christopher Tolkien gives us on that, and use this as an occasion to really look back over kind of the big picture of what's going on with Tolkien in his creative life here. Um, so let's, um, 
Uh, <laughs> so Richard asks, is that what I mean by the spell of bottomless dread? Uh, no, 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 I will confess, actually, I, I named, I titled this class The Spell of Bottomless Dread just because that phrase was way too cool not to use. Um, uh, so anyway, um, uh, besides, it seems like a good name for a lecture, doesn't it? Um, anyhow, um, okay, so remember... Uh, thinking back over the textual situation of the Book of Lost Tales, remember that the the Book of Lost Tales starts not with an overall narrative, but with individual stories. Right, that the stories that we've been, you know, that from the, you know, starting with the with the music of the Ainur and going through the history of the Valar and the coming of the Elves and the departure of the Elves and the darkening of Valinor, all of those things, um, you know, on through the later history, uh, you know, the, and the and the conflicts in the Great Lands, aka Middle Earth. Um, all of these things, um, you know, culminating somehow with the tale, with the tale of Arendel. Um, this is not a narrative that unfolded for Tolkien in this order. It's certainly not the case that that story, that that large panoramic contiguous story, is sort of the tale that was unfolding before Tolkien, and he's just kind of you know, sort of chopping it up in this way um, in order to present it to us. As we've seen before, that is emphatically not the case. Um, he started with isolated stories, which he's, in through this, bringing together. And we get, at moments, in Christopher Tolkien's commentary, some really interesting evidence for this. Um, here's one that I skipped over a while back, but have been meaning to come back to. Um... He says, the page numbering of the notebooks shows that the next tale, that is the next tale after the darkening of Valinor, we're talking about, um, the next tale was to be the tale of Tenuviel, which is written in another book, that is another notebook. This long story, to be given in part two, the oldest extant version of Baron and Luthien, begins with a long link passage, that is, you know, one of those fra uh, frame tale passages, and the curious thing is that this link begins with the very dialogue between Lindo and Ariel just referred to, in almost identical wording, and this can be seen in its original place, but here it was struck through. And this can be seen to be its original place, but here it was struck through. Okay, so, so you see what we've learned there already. So, and, and that dialogue, you'll remember that. We talked about that dialogue. It's, that's the one where Ariel comments... But remember when we were talking about the nature of evil? Um, it's the one where Ariel... Um, yes, where Ariel is like, oh, you know, this is... Of all of the terrible things that Melko has done, this is the, this is the worst. Remember, Lindo is like, yeah, well, he's tried to up the ante since then, right? It's not for lack of trying. Um, that's, the, that's the exchange in question there. Um, so originally... That commentary, you know, that sort of discussion reflecting back upon the darkening of Valinor was written into the notebook, paginated continuously, which then began the tale of Tenuvio, the Baron and Luthien story. So it's pretty clear from this manuscript evidence that in Tolkien's mind, the tale of Baron and Luthien was, was going to come right after. Uh, the, um, the 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 tale of uh, of the darkening of Valinor. It's struck through with a line here, and then it's placed at the end of the darkening of Valinor, as it, as Christopher Tolkien gave it in this text, right, um, showing that he abandoned this sequencing concept at some later point. But this was the original concept, and then he you know, then Christopher talks about the, the the problem of the dating 
of this that this seems to suggest? At first sight, then, he says, there's a hopeless contradiction in the evidence, for the link in question refers explicitly to the darkening of Valinor, a tale written after his appointment in Oxford at the end of 1918, but is a link to the tale of Tenuvio, which he said that he wrote in 1917. But the tale of Tenuvio and the link that precedes it is in fact a text in ink written over an erased penciled original. It is, I think, certain that this rewriting of Tenuvio was considerably later. It was linked to the flight of the Noldoli by the speeches of Lindo and Ariel, the link passage is integral and continuous with the tale of Tenuvio that follows it, and was not added afterwards. At this stage, my father must have felt that the tale need not necessarily be told in the actual sequence of the narrative, for Tenuvio belongs, of course, to the time after the making of the sun and moon. Okay, so you see what this tells us. You see what we learn from that very interesting piece of information. First, a reminder, he had the tale of Tenuvio, right? So the fact that this manuscript evidence um, runs contrary to Tolkien's own testimony about when he wrote these stories demonstrates tale of Tenuvio had already been written, right? He'd already drafted the tale of Tenuvio. That was... That existed before this link, before these later stories, right? So again, the tale of Tenuvio is one of those stories that was already in his mind in which he's now working backwards into this larger picture that he's embedding within this larger picture. But when he goes back to revise the tale of Tenuvio, right, in that, that, that ink revision that he does, he, he connects it not in chronological sequence, Right, um, and that itself also is a very fascinating to me point. It's my favorite point um, of this of this entire passage. It's the whole reason actually I wanted to talk about this passage, um, because if you think about it, um, the implications of this sort of a chronological placement of the Tenuvial story. And again, I don't think we need to see this as like a problem or a contradiction or anything like that. It rather just seems evidence, as Christopher Tolkien seems to seems to, to, to recognize that you know to suggest there at the end, um, that Tolkien was not going to adhere rigidly to a chronological sequence for the Lost Tales. So you know, given that he's going to be embedding these stories in the frame tale of Ariel and Lindo and Vire and all the rest of them, um, he's 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 not going to just tell them in order. He is appears instead to be opening the door to linking the tales by more than just history. Again, they're not even conceived retroactively, initially, as a rigidly chronological sequence. Not only did it not emerge in his mind that way, that's not plan A. That wasn't apparently plan A for presenting them. Instead, he seems to be grouping them in what I would suggest, or at least what seems suggested to me by, by this particular juxtaposition, that is between the the uh, the, the 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 darkening of Valinor and the um, and you know and the and the the, the flight of the Noldoli, all that stuff, and the tale of Tenuvial, um without going through the tale of the sun and moon beforehand, um, by shifting Baron Luthien forward, he seems to be suggesting rather a thematic connection than a chronological connection, and I love this. I, I actually think. The tale of Tenuvio is the perfect response to the darkening of Valinor, the flight of the Noldoli, all of those, the apparent collapse. You know, an Ariel sitting there and saying, man, this is awful, right? How could this, this is really terrible. And then have the response to that be, but wait, 
consider the tale of Tinuvio, and the way in which that story works backwards, not to counter, that's way too simplistic, but the way that this tale serves in some sense to to heal or even redeem some of the earlier material that we get, I think is really beautiful. Um, and uh, so, so again, I think that that's really... Um, that's really that's this is a really cool thing. So again, so we have to remember not only is the um, the 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 lost tales that is the, the actual tales themselves, um, you know the 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 story of the ancient history of the world and the valor and all that stuff. Um, not only is that not you know one continuous story which is just kind of being interrupted by the frame tale. But it is also, um, uh, you know, it's 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 it wasn't even necessarily going to be presented in that way. That isn't necessarily even the primary. Not only did it not emerge that way, that doesn't even necessarily seem to be the the exclusive way in which Tolkien wants us to think about it. And that I think is really um, is really interesting. Is really engaging to kind of think about. It, it, it's it's challenging. I think challenging for us, especially since you know, all of us kind of grew up on the Silmarillion, you know, that is, it grew up in our understanding of, of, of Middle-earth, that is, the published Silmarillion is still, I am sure for most of us uh, here in this class, the primary way in which we think of this story. Um, but it's, um, it's not, um, when we have the Lost Tales, when we have it in the Lost Tales context, it's at least possible, again, or at least it was a possibility in Tolkien's mind that he was going to encourage us, actively encourage us not to think about it in a contiguous way, um, but to be kind of putting these stories together in other ways um, um, and have them kind of be speaking to each other um, in this way. Um, yeah, Richard says that the Baron Luthien story seems to be older than the frame narrative, or, or am I missing something? No, you're not, Richard. That, that's exactly right. It is older than the frame narrative. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Sarah says it also makes sense because Baron is an elf from a different faction in the first version and encounters prejudice that way. Yeah, spoiler alert for those of you who haven't read Volume Two of the Book of Lost Tales: Baron is not a human uh, in in uh, uh, in in the original conception. He's a, he's an elf. Uh, it's not the story of a human elf liaison initially, um, but it is still thematically very similar. Um, but the gulf, Sarah, exactly, as I think you're suggesting, the gulf, the gulf that's being bridged was between the Noldo and, uh, and, uh, and, and the other, you know, the, 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 the non-Noldo elves against whom they've, you know, from whom they've been exiled and against whom they've been... Anyway, you know, so this is, um, again, we see it speaking more directly to things like the kinslaying. Um, and to the darkening of Valinor, even more in, in sort of in a, in a in a kind of broader sense, um, and from thence it makes the transition to being about humans and elves. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, um, Don says, when I say Tolkien meant us to think things thematically, think of things thematically, I'm surprised. Was Tolkien writing these for publication or his own amusement? Um, well, Don, that's hard to say. First of all, I probably did say Tolkien meant, which uh, I, I'm trying to give up saying that, but it's hard not to say that, even though I don't exactly mean it. That is, 
as I've been saying, well, really since the very first podcast episode I ever recorded back in the summer of 2007, um, I'm not trying to pretend I can get inside Tolkien's head. I don't know exactly what he meant and what he was thinking. Um, but it's still the most convenient word to use when I'm talking about the way that the stories are, you know, when it's sort of a, a, a an authorial or editorial choice that he has made. And it, anyway, I know, I know, yes, Nancy and Arthur and Andrew are both accusing me of crit fic. Exactly, exactly. I know, I'm trying. I'm tr- See, it's hard. It's really hard to avoid. Uh, exactly as C.S. Lewis was arguing in, in his uh, essay on criticism that I was quoting when I, uh, you know, the, on the day that I coined the term crit fic. Um, uh, that kind, the, 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 the vocabulary, the whole vocabulary of criticism is just steeped in the concept of critfic. Even if you're trying to avoid the thing, your words betray you. Um, especially when you're, you know, sort of raised on, uh, <laughs> you know, you're sort of trained in, uh, in literary criticism. Um, I'm sorry. Like, this, these are the terms I've taken in with my mother's milk. I can't help it. Um, or rather, I'm trying to help it. Please be patient with me. Um, but, um, yeah, good. Um, sorry, um, uh, 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 yeah, Richard, you're absolutely right. Richard asks for an explanation of critfic for those who are new. I shouldn't make an assumption because I've been talking about it primarily in a Riddles in the Dark context, so those of you who haven't uh, been listening to that series might be unfamiliar with it. I'll give a very brief explanation. The brief explanation, uh, I coined the term critfic, um, modeling it on uh, the, the term fanfic, of course. If, if, uh, if, if fan fiction is, uh, is fiction that you, that one person writes about the, you know, sort of based upon the world of another person's fiction. Um, so critfic, uh, crit fiction is what a critic does when instead of doing a careful analysis of the text, they start making guesses and projections about what was going on in the head or in the life of the author instead. Um, um, and uh, I was basing uh, the concepts of this on C.S. Lewis's essay on criticism, which I found just revolutionary to my own thinking the first time I read it. Um, and one of the things that he's sort of describing there is he describes how when so many times when people uh, review or, or analyze works, they, they, they skip the step of actually trying, because it's a harder thing to do. It's a harder thing. To, like, if you dislike a text, if you think it's a bad piece of writing, it's harder to look at that carefully and explain wherein does the badness lie. What is it about this that makes it bad? And it's much easier to start speculating about the circumstances or intentions of the author that made it bad, right? Um, so so if you don't like a, a particular, to use one of Lewis's examples, if you don't like it, you know, you, you, you think a particular passage in a book doesn't work and isn't very good, so you say that sounded rushed. That's not a piece of analysis of the text. That is a guess as to uh, what was going on in the authorial process. And as Lewis points out, you're very likely to be wrong. The, uh, the, the, the passage that sounds rushed to you may well have been labored over for days and days by the author. You don't know. Um, and you're not saying anything helpful by saying that it's rushed. Instead, look at it more carefully and tell us what, what, what is the problem with it. So similarly... Um, um, uh, so, uh, um, so, so similarly, the, um, uh, 
you know, when, uh, when, when, when people say things like, uh, uh, well, anyway, never mind. I'm not gonna, I, I, I will, uh, I will, I will, uh, I will go back. Um, anyhow, we'll return to the Book of Lost Tales. But that's, that's the crit fit concept, and I was just guilty of it, so I've been, I've been called on it. I apologize. Now, um, back to, uh, back to the sequencing of the, te- back to our textual discussion here. Um, so, so again, well, you know, th- this concept of the thematic linking of these stories is, is to me really fascinating. And again, a reminder that these are actually stories that Tolkien is presenting separately that might seem like, well, obviously, what else would they be? Well, I know when I read the Book of Lost Tales, um, I'm tempted to lose sight of that because I'm used to the Silmarillion as my standard, right? Like, let's tell the story continuously from one end to the other without any frame, right? So to me, as I'm reading it, the frame sounds like an interruption. It's kind of an interesting interruption. I love frame stories, but but that's just me. Maybe you don't. Maybe you're just... I mean, so again, it's like, I'm trying to follow the main story, but we keep like, let's stop and now have some dialogue between Lindo and Vyra and Ariel, and now let's take Ariel over here and let him talk to Meroli Tarinki about how he wants to drink Limpe. And that's all kind of interesting, but can we please get back to the story, right? We're just, we're sort of interrupting uh, the story as we go along. Uh, This is an interesting reminder that that's not the concept. That's not the fundamental concept, it seems, um, of these stories. These are individual stories, which um, are being placed within this frame narrative, not one continuous story that's just being chopped up, right? And that, I think prompts us, should prompt us, to think about these stories very differently. And the other effect of it is, I hope, to get us to take the frame narrative a little bit more seriously. The frame narrative is not just an interruption. In fact, in a sense, the frame narrative is the real story. Let me, let me uh, give you a little bit on that, um, show you what I mean here. Um, this is uh, from the, the discussion of uh, Gilfanon's tale, and sort of talking about when uh, the character Gilfanon used to be Ilios, and his name was changed, or rather he was replaced by Gilfanon uh, in the later version. Um, but here we have, you know, okay, the text ends with Ilios preparing to tell a tale. I tell but as I may those things I have seen and known of very ancient days within the world when the sun rose first, and there was travail and much sorrow, for Melko reigned unhampered, and the power and strength that went forth from Angamandi reached almost to the ends of the great earth. The end. <laughs> it is clear that no more was written. If it had been completed, it would have led into the opening of Turambar, cited above. Um, when then Ilios had spoken his fill, that is, we get that fragment of, uh, you know, a link, a frame link, going into the Turambar story. And it would have been central to the history of the Great Lands, telling of the coming of the Noldoli from Valinor, the awakening of men, and the Battle of Unnumbered Tears. The text just described, linking the, hi- the hiding of Valinor to Ilios's unwritten tale, was not struck out, and my father later wrote on it, to come after the tale of Eärendil, and before Ariel fares to Tavrabel, after Tavrabel he drinks of Limpe. This is puzzling, since he cannot have intended the story of the coming of men to follow that of Eärendil, 
but it may be that he intended only to use the substance of this short text describing the Turu Halme ceremonies. That is, remember the, the the description in the frame of like when they go and and bring in the logs for the fire and have like winter sports and whatever, and then they tell tales afterwards, right? Um, uh, uh, right, but it may be that he intended only to use the substance of this short text describing the, tur- the Turohame ceremonies without its ending. Um, uh, and uh, Nancy says it's kind of the opposite of what I was saying about the tale of Tenuvio and the darkening of Valinor. Um, uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, Melko reigned unhampered. Well, time to hear about Turimbar. Yeah, in that sense, uh, uh, yeah, you're certainly right, uh, uh, Nancy. It does suggest that uh, his his uh, approach was not always going to be to follow, uh, you know, a downer with an upper there. Instead, we were going to get a downer with an even worse downer. Um, True, true, admittedly. But notice what happened there at the end. Christopher Tolkien says, Tolkien cannot have intended to tell this story, to have Ileos' tale, that is, the story of the the coming of the Noldoli, the awakening of men, and the battle of unnumbered tears. That can't be supposed to come after the tale of Arendel, right? There's no way. No way that was going to come after the tale of Arendel. I mean, how can you tell the story of the, the awakening of men after Arendel? It doesn't make any sense. I have to admit, though, though I agree that um, I, I'm perfectly willing to concede that Christopher Tolkien's interpretation there is perfectly plausible. That is, that Tolkien is referring to that part of the frame tale is supposed to come after, you know, that 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 that, that scene, the bit, the Turohame ceremonies. Maybe that's all he was referring to. But, I'm a little bit more willing to believe than Christopher Tolkien appears to be um, that maybe that was Tolkien's in, intention, actually. Um, the assumption, which appears to underlie Christopher Tolkien's dismissal of the idea that Tolkien might have intended the Book of Lost Tales to tell first all of these other stories culminating in the tale of Eärendil, and then tell the story of, of uh, the awakening of men in the Battle of Unnumbered Tears. Maybe. But I'm not sure, actually. Um, I, it's, it does not seem to me beyond the scope. Remember what we saw before. He was going to tell deliberately place tales. Um, we have pretty clear manuscript evidence that he was going to place tales in, un, in, an, in a non-chronological order. Right? In fact, just grouping them um, sort of thematically instead. Um, maybe it would actually have been really interesting to do this. To take it out of its historical narrative and to place it there. Um... Andrew says, flashbacks... No, Andrew, not flashbacks. It's just a different story, right? And now we're going to tell you another story, a story that happened before this. You, you haven't heard this story about what happened back then, right? What would be the effect of that? Well, it would be fascinating, just as, I think, the juxtaposition of the darkening of Valinor and the flight of the Noldoli with uh, the, ta- uh, the tale of Tenuvio is, I think, a fascinating juxtaposition of, of stories. So, too, I think the tale of Eärendil... Not that we know very specifically what that was. He didn't write the tale of Eärendil, but um, but anyway, what from what we know of the tale of Eärendil, where he seems to have been planning to go with the tale of with the tale of Eärendil, I think that that would make a really fascinating juxtaposition with a description of the awakening of men in the Battle of Unnumbered Tears. Actually, um, 
you know, in a sense, we'd be having, you know, this sort of redemptive moment juxtaposed with the fall of men, you know, with sort of the corruption of men, um, and that, you know, that we'd have reconciliation being paired with betrayal. Um, and not only that, we would also get, um, we would also get uh, uh, the coming of the Noldoli in the same tale to the world in direct anticipation. What's going to come at the end? Well, remember, Christopher Tolkien gave us some hints of where the narrative, that is the frame tale narrative, was headed, which was to the faring forth. That is, to the return of the elves of Tolerasea to the Great Lands. Um, so the way in which the coming of the Noldoli to the Great Lands, that tale would be very relevant, not to the chronology of the, you know, what from a, modern, a Silmarillion perspective we would call the First Age material, but rather it would be very relevant to the chronology of the frame tale, right? Um, at least potentially, based upon what we know. Um, and I think that's really kind of fascinating. Um, uh, and uh, so I'm, you know, it's not like I'm saying I'm 100% convinced that that's what he meant, but but I certainly don't, uh, it, it does not seem to me um, impossible, as, as Christopher Tolkien seemed to suggest, that he intended the story of the coming of men to follow that of Arendel. I don't think so. I don't think it's in, in, inconceivable. Um, in fact, I find it a darn enticing possibility. But the other thing I wanted to point out from this passage is that, as I mentioned before, the real story, in a sense, is the frame. The frame is not just an interruption. Um, the frame is itself a legitimate story with a beginning, middle, and end. Um, and in its end, it was to be, as Christopher Tolkien explained back in, uh, in, in, the, in the, his discussion of Ariel, um, back in, uh, in, in the beginning, back in chapter one, in the commentary after chapter one, um, the story of Ariel and Lindo and Vire and all the rest of them was going to be interwoven with this larger story um, at the end. And uh, um, that, I think, is really fascinating. We can see ways in which the frame tale, if he were to put the tale of the coming of the, the awakening of men, after um, <clears throat> Eärendil, it would seem primarily because it would be relevant to the frame, rather than having the frame be merely slavishly, you know, sort of circling the tales themselves and sort of only giving an occasion or an, or an excuse to tell the lost tales themselves. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Yana says it's still a strange thing to have such a heavy frame in Tolkien, um, but that's because it seems to be a unique part of the story at large as well. I, I agree, Yana. It, it is... This is an unusual thing. It's not unique in Tolkien's stories. Um, we do see him working at, like, stories within stories and things like the Notion Club papers. That, of course, is a different context there. Um, but we have this, this idea being used in other places, but he didn't try to do this exactly, Right? Um, and what he seems to be undertaking here seems to me a pretty remarkable project, and we'll come back to that. Um, we'll we'll come back to that in a little bit. Um, let's review quickly where we are here at the end of the book. 
that is the end of volume one. Um, you know, the, the end of, when I say the end of the book, I mean the end of this book that we've been reading together. Um, he says, what there is of his tale is very hastily written in pencil, and it is quite clear that it ends where it does, that is Gilfanon's tale, because my father wrote no more of it. It was here that my father abandoned the lost tales, or more accurately, abandoned those that still waited to be written, and the effects of this withdrawal never ceased to be felt throughout the history of the Silmarillion, that is, of this material that was going to be revived throughout his life. The major stories to follow Gilfanon's, those of Baron and Tenuviel, Turin Turambar, the fall of Gondolin, and the Necklace of the Dwarves, had been written, and in the first three cases, rewritten, and the last of these was to lead on to the great tale of Eärendil. But that was not even begun. Thus the lost tales lack their middle and their end. Okay, so... Um, this is an important reminder that as we come to the end of Volume 1 of the Book of Lost Tales, we are, in a sense, not halfway through the Book of Lost Tales. We are, in a sense, at the end of the Book of Lost Tales, right? Um, here endeth the Book of Lost Tales. That is, you know, within the chronology of Tolkien's life, that's where they end. The stories in Volume 2 follow within the internal chronology of, uh, of the story, that is, they come later in the history of Valinor and the Great Lands... Um, the, the tales themselves and the frames continue on in to generally follow that chronology to agree with that chronology generally it seems um, uh, but they almost all of them were written before this other stuff or or and and all of them were written well all except the tale of Arendel which never gets written at all um, uh, and that of course uh, that of course is the exception um, and then just to do a quick review of the outlines and stuff to keep this straight, especially from when we talk about them a little bit later on, um, his description here. The second outline, referred to above, an unrealized project for the revision of the whole work, introduces features that need not be discussed here. It is sufficient to say that the Mariner was now Alfwina, not Ariel, and that his previous history was changed, but that the general plan of the tales themselves was largely intact, with several notes to the effect that they needed a bridging or recasting. This outline I shall call D. How much time elapsed between B and D cannot be said, but I think probably not much. It seems possible that this new scheme was associated with the sudden breaking off of Gilfanon's tale. As with B, D suddenly expands to a much fuller account when this point is reached. Okay, so I just I just want to make sure that this is clear in everybody's mind what's sort of going on here. Um, Tolkien seems to have written an outline. This is we can you know th this seemed to be um, a pretty stable pattern for him. Um, you know he would kind of plot out what he where he was planning for the stories to go before he would then go on and write them. And this is it's especially important in this context. This is in the context of the Lost Tales where he has these pre-existing stories, and one of the primary things he's doing is fitting them together and bridging them, right? Um, so he's, he, that, that's why in those outlines, as, to, as Christopher Tolkien describes them, we get lots of detail about the stories that he hasn't written yet, and then, you know, here lieth the tale of Tenuvio, and then some more stuff, and then here lieth the, you know, the tale of Turin Turinbar. Um, you know, all of those, uh, you know, so again, it's clear that he's connecting the dots between his pre-existing pieces um, in these outlines. So the, the outline... You'll remember in the Gilfanon's Tale chapter, 
Christopher Tolkien talks about the the early version and the late version, right? The early version is what he calls outline B. The late version is what he calls outline D. But we're not talking early and late like the Adventures of Tom Bombadil, the poem, and the Adventures of Tom Bombadil revised in six. We're talking about thirty year gap in between these things, right? We're talking about um, he he believes Christopher Tolkien believes that not much time had elapsed between B and D, so he breaks off. Ilios' story, right? You know, he breaks off, you know, or, or, or Gilfanon's story, and says, "Okay, um, here's where it's going to go. This is the B outline, right? Here's where I'm going to go." Then he has a brainwave and says, "No, no, no, wait. I'm going to revise this, right? Actually, I'm going to ditch Ariel and I'm going to replace him with Alfwina. I'm going to give him a different story, and then I'm going to." Um, uh, and, and and then he, and then he rev- he sits and writes a new version of his projected outline, right? Um, so he has a second draft of that projected outline, and that's D. So B is the first one, D is the second one. They're called B and D instead of A and B because there's also an A and a B text which came before the other ones, but they're only minor. And anyway, it's not a big deal. The primary ones are B and D. Um, so that's the reason why we have these two outlines, and Christopher Tolkien presents us with both of them. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Sarah says it's so annoying that people can't be bothered to label and date and keep time li- timelines of all their revisions to all their works throughout their lives. And she adds, "I work at a museum." Um, I know, Sarah. Exactly. Like, why couldn't uh, 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 Tolkien expect um, you know that like all posterity would have been wanting to know exactly when he had uh, written all of these sketches and things that he wrote in the margins of stuff. Um, Oh, and Don, I never answered your question before. I do... It is my belief. Um, and I use that word carefully, belief, that Tolkien meant for The Lost Tales to be published. I think when he was writing this, this was something that he meant to to do. Um, for several reasons. One of the reasons that I believe that is that this whole structure... Um, seems far too elaborate to just be something that he's working out for his own satisfaction. And in particular, I'm thinking of the way that these tales are being connected um, uh, into... A, the the packaging of them into a coherent narrative framework that is the frame tale of the Book of Lost Tales seems to me clearly like a way to bring these stories into a kind of cohesion and the way that the frame tale works together with these other tales into this interwoven narrative, which was going to come to its big conclusion at the end, which we never get, um, that, is, that, that whole procedure, that, this, this sounds like a, you know, a publishable novel, not a, um, well, not really a novel, but a publishable book, and not just a, you know, I was just writing down some stuff. You could argue, for instance, that the uh, the lays of Beleriand, that is the longer versions of the poem that he goes on, the poems that he goes on to write later, especially I would say, you know, his um, his alliterative version of the Children of Hurin that he goes on to write pretty pretty relatively soon after this. Um, that Don, I would I would I could totally believe he was just doing for his own, you know, entertainment. An edification that he wanted to develop this story more, and he loved the 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 alliterative mode, right? And so he wanted to play with the alliterative mode, and he wanted to develop the story. So, you know, uh, you know, uh, the Children of Hurin is like, you know, chocolate meets peanut butter. It's pure fun and delight. 
Okay, not for readers, but for Tolkien, uh, it was pure fun and delight. See, I bet uh, no one's ever called the Children of Hurin pure fun and delight before. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, I so get, of that Don, I could believe it. Of the Book of Lost Tales, I don't believe it. Um, I think he had ambitions for this. Um, anyway, but that's just a that's just a belief on my part. He certainly didn't, you know, didn't get it to that point, um, didn't, didn't complete that project. So let's attempt a sort of crude history um, of Tolkien's early imaginative life based on the stuff that we learn in this volume here, right? What have we learned? What can we see? I, I want to try to sort of connect the dots a little bit more. Let's make this into a narrative. Um, he begins it seems, with some general ideas about fairies and fairy. We see, the, we see this especially in his poetry, right? The poems that he wrote quite early on, poems like Goblin Feet, The Cottage of Lost Play, the Tinfang Warble poems, all those, you know, really early stuff that we get. Um, these poems seem to, you know, sort of express these ideas and concepts about fairies and magic and, 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 and the, the, you know, sort of the concept of fairy and the, the relationship between mortals and fairy and between mortals and fairies and, you know, all of the, you know, the, these, these ideas are there in Tolkien's mind and he's giving them expression. Um, you know, he's working out some of these ideas in his poems. Um, and then stories emerge, right? Through, in part, the, you know, the combination of some of these fairy ideas with some other um, sort of larger stories, as for instance, the way that the Turambar story is, you know, like when sort of this world meets uh, the Kalevala, you know, and the, the story of Kulervo that he himself had already done a version of. Um, so, you know, so we can see these, these, these big stories kind of emerging out of this. The story of Tenuviel, Turambar, the fall of Gondolin, you know, the story of the cursed dragon's treasure. Um, that is the, the story of <clears throat> the, uh, uh, the, the Nauglifring, as it was called at this point. Um, we get some images and ideas that don't get put into stories, such as the Arendel, the Arendel business, which remain in isolation and, and, and are not told or are never really told in that in that stage. Um, so okay, so we have so we have the, the initial ideas, then we have these stories which emerge. Now we add to this the desire that Tolkien has that he explains in retrospect, in which we can see evidenced in his work of this period, to articulate the connection between fairy and England, right? The whole mythology for England thing. Um, we can see this, again, not just in the letters he wrote about it years later, um, but in the works that he wrote at the time, such as the long poem Cortirian Among the Trees that we talked about a little bit, which is very interested in the connection between fairy and England in particular, right? Um, so again, so we can see that there's there's that desire too. All of these things then come together into one ambitious project, right? He brings together the concepts um, of, of of fairies and fairy, and sort of the, the the kind of fairy that he wanted to tell stories and write poems about. These stories, which had already been emerging in his imagination, Tenuviel, Turambar, Gondolin. Um, um, so he wants to bring together those stories and those concepts into a unified and filled out mythology, um, you know, possibly, as we said, a sort of a, a collection of thematically connected stories, not necessarily a strict contiguous narrative. Um, 
Um, though he might possibly, through his revisions, we can see that he might go all the way and make it a more or less continuous story, but he's also going to place it in the context of a frame story that roots fairy squarely in our world, and this is where the Ariel business comes in and is so important, right? Ariel, the son of Arendel, as he's called at the very beginning, um, you know, is a traveler from our world, right? He's a proto-Englishman, and we're going to interweave the two things. We're going to interweave those, the, 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 the concepts and stories that have now been joined into this one more or less contiguous narrative, right? This, this, this one overarching story of, you know, from the music of the Ainur, um, you know, up, up, up through the story of Eärendil, and then we're going to get, we're, we're going to now, we're going to superimpose the frame tale on top of that and have those two things come together at the end. Um, you know, the, 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 the climax of the frame tale with Ariel joining in and becoming a part of the, of the, of the story. Um, the two culminate in the, you know, bringing both of these things into historical contact with England, right? But then before he could finish this project, he changes his mind, Right? Um, okay, wait, hang on. Not Ariel Alfwina, right? Which, the cha- it's not just about the change of the name. As Christopher Tolkien explains, um, it's, a, it's a change in the historical, in the English historical context that he's wanting to bring into contact here. So instead of the sort of proto-Englishman, pre, uh, you know, Ariel, we have the actual Anglo-Saxon dude, Alfwina. So, okay, so, so, so that's going to be a little bit different, but, uh, but that's okay. So anyway, so that so then he's still, you know, with that change, he's still coming back, rethinking the frame tale, honing that, uh, and how that's going to fit with the stories and culminate and connect to England. And then he drops it and doesn't finish it. Um, where does he go from here? He starts revi- He goes back to those great tales in isolation, right? Starts revising them. Um, you know, d- develops the Children of Hurin. Develops, you know, uh, writes the Lay of Lathian, the you know the 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 the, the poetic version of the of the Tenubial story. Um, he he writes and revises some of his old. You know, he revises some of his old poetry. Writes some new poetry. We see him kind of going back um, to what he was doing before he began the ambitious project of the Book of Lost Tales. Um, and then, the fateful day. The turning point in his career. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Um, now, many there might be who could better my reading here, um, but I'm you know, sort of just trying to show us what the text that Christopher Tolkien has given us here in this volume seem to suggest about the overall sort of shape of Tolkien's imaginative career as we're watching it unfold here. And to me, this is the thing which is so cool and so exciting about the History of Middle-Earth series, is not just to get more stuff, right? Not just to get more stories. That's kind of cool in itself. But to to watch the unfolding of Tolkien's thought, which we can do in, in this kind of big-picture way, right? To begin to get a clearer idea of, of sort of the trajectory of, of, his, of his mindset and sort of the direction of his creative thought over the course of his life, but then also to be able to look at it in kind of microscopic ways, right? And see, you know, particular changes in particular scenes and characters and ideas as they change in different iterations of the story. Um, I just love this stuff, and it's really neat and fun to think about. 
So with the time that we have left, I want to uh, go back and look at some of the highlights from Gilfanon's tale, especially from the outline material um, that we're given later on. Um, and I would love for this to be um, pretty open. If there are other things, by the way, if you have other questions um, that you would... Um, that you would like me to address, um, you know, sort of new topics, by all means, throw those out. I'm happy to do that. Um, um, but I was going to throw up some passages from uh, from Gilfenon's tale and from the outline stuff, and just see what we can observe, what stuff we we can we can notice about that. Okay, I want to be talking about some passages. Um, you know, these are sort of more fragmentary. Some of these are taken uh, not from Tolkien's own writing, essentially, but from Christopher Tolkien's summaries of the outlines and sort of telling us what was coming. So, you know, it's okay to kind of step back and look at this in, in, in a kind of a big picture way. And I just want to, I, I'll be interested to hear what your reactions are, what you notice, what are some things, especially, you know, having looked at all of the rest of these uh, leading up to it, um, what. Uh, what you guys think is significant, what you guys would like to talk about. Um, and I, I do want to come back to uh, the, uh, the spell of Bottomless Dread, which I think is pretty awesome. Um, uh, and you'll remember the spell of Bottomless Dread was the, the spell that was put upon the elves captured by Melgo, right? Um, um, it was the way in which they were, you know, cowed and intimidated. Um, and that's it's a it's a fascinating uh, kind of concept. And again, I just can't I just can't improve upon the phrase. There are a bunch of Tolkien's phrases uh, from back in his <clears throat> more self consciously archaic. People think the Silmarillion is archaic, but um, uh, the um, uh, the the Book of Lost Tales, of course, much more so, much more self-consciously so. And some of his phrases uh, in this book are just fantastic. Um, but anyway, here's uh, here's the first uh, passage I wanted to throw out there to you uh, for discussion. As I read it, go ahead and, and start just pointing out to me the stuff that you find interesting here. Now the tale tells of a certain fay, and names him too, the wizard. For he was more skilled in magics than any that have dwelt ever yet beyond the land of Valinor, and wandering about the world he found the something elves, and he drew them to him, and taught them many deep things, and he became a mighty king among them, and their tales name him the Lord of Gloaming, and all the fairies of the realm of, of and, and all the fairies of his realm Hisildi, or the Twilight People. Now the places of Koivianani and the waters of Awakening were rugged and full of mighty rocks, and the stream that, fed, that feeds that water falls therein down a deep cleft, something a pale and slender thread, but the issue of the dark lake was beneath the earth into many endless caverns, falling ever more deeply into the bosom of the world. There was the dwelling of Tu the wizard, and fathomless hollow are those places, but their doors have long been sealed, and none know now the entry. Um, crazy, isn't it? Um, first of all, the Lord of Gloaming. Oh man, that's another one. That is, I, I am so sad that nobody in Tolkien's later work earns the title the Lord of Gloaming. That is a fantastic title. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Now, again, what I'd like to do here is I'd like to try to think about these on their own terms. Christopher Tolkien does a lot of work in his commentary and discussion, right? So comparing and contrasting, drawing our attention to uh, notice these bits that are similar to the Silmarillion, notice the stuff from the Silmarillion that's not there. Um, and we can talk about that if you really want to, but, but what again, what I'd really like to do is just sort of to kind of get into this world a little bit more. Um, uh, <laughs> and, uh, Ed says it's not as good as Tevildo, Lord of Cats. Yeah, that is pretty good. Though I still think uh, uh, To the Wizard King, Lord of Gloaming is, uh, uh, is uh, pretty... Yeah, uh, Sarah King says, uh, Aeol is sorry, he didn't use that one. Yeah, the Dark Elf is okay, but boy, I bet Aeol really wished that uh, Lord of Gloaming would really have caught on, don't you think? Um, um, yeah, yeah. But... Um, I um, I have to admit, I'm a little puzzled by Christopher Tolkien's comment at the end of Gilfonan's tale that two and Nuin, remember Nuin is the elf, you know, one of two's elves who uh, who goes and um, discovers the pre-awakened men. Right, he goes, he trespasses upon them, and uh, and um, uh, anyway, he um. He says, Christopher Tolkien says that both Tu and Nguyen were to drop out of the narrative and, and, you know, without trace. It's not true, actually. Um, I mean, I, I can't even tell you how hesitant I am to say this, because Christopher Tolkien is far, I mean, my knowledge of, 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 of Tolkien's collected writings is a thimbleful compared to Christopher Tolkien's, who has edited these papers for decades um, and has access to material I've never seen in my life. So, um, however, Two doesn't drop out. He's totally there. Um, Two is this is the necromancer in the Lay of Lathian. Um, I, I, it's, I, I mean, it's not the same guy. is isn't the same dude exactly. Um, it's not like this precise guy. But the name of the guy who is a kind of sinister lord of, you know, wizard magic, and uh, uh, he's totally there. Um, and his name is Tu, T-H-U, then, instead of T-U. Um, but that's just a spelling difference. It's not even a, not even necessarily a pronunciation difference. So I... Um, and of course, as, as, as most of you know, that guy will become, eventually, Sauron. Um, so, um, uh, you, you know, you can, uh, um, you can say that, uh, um, it, I'm being, of course, as usual, uh, bombarded by Arthur's puns. <laughs> Arthur, you are, uh, you were indefatigable, uh, with your punning. And uh, he's uh, saying, I, I, I only have an eye for two. Yes, yes, yes. True enough, Arthur. Um, um, yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, Jan is pointing out, making the, uh, Tevildo Prince of Cats comments even more appropriate. Yes, Tevildo Prince of Cats is the one who plays the role that will later be given to Tu or Sauron, uh, in the Baron and Luthien story, that is, as the guy who captures Baron from whose enslavement, um, uh, Tenuvio rescues him. Um, Originally, in the in the uh, Lost Tales version of uh, the Tale of Tenuvio, that's Tevildo, Prince of Cats, who captures Baron. Um, but, uh, but 
However, you really can't make the argument, I mean, I don't think you can make the argument that Tevildo, Prince of Cats, as a character, develops into Sauron. Rather, that role in the story of Tenuviel is taken over by the Sauron character, and Tevildo, Prince of Cats, sadly, disappears. Um, but it's two who takes over that role. So, and that was one thing, anyway, like I said, I, I, I am super, super hesitant um, I might disagree with Christopher Tolkien sometimes in interpretation. I don't feel particularly shy in doing that. Um, um, differing from him in a reading of a, of a particular you know passage that he's given us. Um, but, um, but I'm awfully hesitant to contradict him in, in a simple statement of fact about Tolkien's writing and Tolkien's papers. Um, but um, th- this kind of um, seems to... Uh, seems like a, a sort of a slip, or maybe he's just thinking about that. Maybe he doesn't mean by that statement what he seems to mean by it. I, I, I'm not sure, but anyway. Um, but what do you notice about two, the Wizard King here? Um, what do you what do you notice? What, what what are some other things that really strike you about this? One of the one thing that I you know well um, anybody who wants to sort of types more about this. Um, one other thing that I would point out is. Um, the whole concept of more skilled in magics, um, even the the use of the plural of that word, um, uh, yes, in a in a hole in the ground there lived a wizard, uh, Arthur. Exactly, um, magic is a word which Tolkien uses with very much more frequency in the Book of Lost Tales, as doubtless you've observed as we've gone through. Um, it is still sometimes used in ways which are not. Um, extremely concrete, um, as, for instance, the discussion of the magic sun, right? Um, it's not clear that by magic sun, you know, it, that, that that means magic in the sense of performing magic, doing magic with the concept that Sam Gamgee seems to have in his mind during that conversation with Galadriel, right? Um, uh, instead of that elf magic that is um, that is you know, more down deep, again, to use Sam's terminology from the Fellowship of the Ring, um, you know, where he can't put his finger on it. Um, we get a lot more magic that you can put your finger on, and called magic. And so this um, this concept of sort of magic as technique, you know, that is, that wise and learned people could learn to do magic in, uh, you know, that... that um, you know, the noun magic isn't often connected with the verb do in Tolkien's writing, right? But here we get more like that concept, I think, of two. Um, um, he is skilled in magic. It's a skill. It's a technique. Right? You can learn it. You can learn how to do magic. And that seems to be... Um, that seems to be the concept that still underlies his idea of wizards when we get to a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit, right? The character of of of, of Gandalf, or Bladorthin the wizard as he originally was in the first manuscript, um, uh, the concept of that wizard who knocks on Bilbo's door, he just is not... There's no evidence in the, uh, you know, in the original hobbit stuff that um, uh, that that the wizard, the, you know, the 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 well, I'll still call him Gandalf. Um, the the wizard Gandalf in in the Hobbit. Now, again, not the Fellowship of the Ring Gandalf, but the Hobbit Gandalf. There's very little evidence that that Gandalf is any kind of angelic being. He's a guy. Um, he's an old guy who um, 
uh, who um, uh, who has learned magics. Um, you know, m- remember how about you know he, he's particularly clever with you know fires and smokes and lights. Um, uh, he he's he has words that he's you know magic words that he says sometimes. Um, that's even still true. Uh, in the Fellowship of the Ring. He still knows lots of spells, um, you know, which, as we see at the Gates of Moria. Um, um, yeah, Carol, and magic as a craft rather than as an inherent, an inherited or gifted ability or, or as kind of, even more vaguely, a kind of expression of who you are as a mere sort of full, a way for somebody else outside to describe the, the um, you know, the outward manifestation of the will or presence of a person. I mean, it's pretty vague. Um, um, but, um, but yeah, Alan asks, is magic akin to, te- to technology or advanced knowledge of how things work? I would say no to the second Alan, but yes to the first. That is not necessarily an advanced knowledge of how things work. I don't think that magic is scientific in that sense. That is, those people who have more deeply studied how the nature of fire are able to manipulate fire, are able to do it, because they... But rather, but is it technology? Yeah, it is a technology, it seems. Again, it's something that you learn, right? It's a it's a craft that you can perform and that you can use to do things. Um... So uh, and exactly, Nancy. He does seem to be teaching it to the elves too. Yes, there's a there's a there's a later passage where he does teach it to people. Um, um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Richard says uh, Tolkien said there were two kinds of magic. One was art, and one was an art, and you know, and one was art, and one was technology. Yeah, he talks about that in on fairy stories. But um, uh, the point, I guess, that I would make is the line between the two seems much more blurry back in his early writings. Um, uh, and um, so, yeah, that's, that's, that's I just, I think, something that's interesting to, to sort of point out. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, the, um, oh, let's see, uh, uh, Josh was asking if I can say the name of uh, The Waters of Awakening again. Um, I'll break it down. Uh, so that, that it's a compound word there. Um, Oi is a diphthong. That's oi diphthong. So koi va. We know that the i and the e are pronounced separately because you've got the diacritic, the two dots above the e, right? Koi va nani. Um, uh, the e would be pronounced a, and it's got an accent there, so you know it's a long vowel, not a short vowel. So it's not nini. It's a long vowel, so it's nani. So koi va nani um, would be how that's pronounced. Um, uh, anyway, um, uh, okay, um, the, uh, the business of his subterranean realm, I think is incredibly evocative in this passage, and of course we see lots of subterranean realms, a couple of you, Richard, Roland in particular, it was sort of thinking of Thingol, though of course not exactly like Thingol as he, as, as he admits, but, um, um, but, you know, this idea, you know, uh, Richard says, uh, you know, it made him think of Thingol if only because he's, you know, an enlightened elf king uh, over dark elves who did not go to Valinor um, and and lives underground, right? Let's, 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 let's throw that into the pot too, Richard, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Now, you know, I've, it, is 
you know, Thingol's not a descendant of two necessarily, when we've already met, uh, you know, Thingol under a different name. Um, uh, you know, he's Tinwilent from earlier on, uh, but uh, um, nevertheless, um, we have, um, uh, you know, there's certainly some elements I think that are going that are going to be sort of parallel in uh, in 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 shape. Um, now. Uh, uh, I just lost my train of thought again. Oh yeah, um, to me what's so striking about the underground dwelling here is the way it's given in the larger sense of myth, not the explanatory myth we were talking about a couple weeks ago, um, but in the, in the larger uh, you know, sense of myth, the under, um, the fathomless hollow uh, of those um, uh, of of the underground dwellings of To the Wizard um, are so evocative. So we've got the waters of awakening, right? The inland sea or lake next to which the elves awoke. So we've got the birthplace of the elves. And then we describe the streams, and at first it's like, why do we care about the stream that feeds the water falling down a, a, a deep cleft? Like, what? Um, well, we have this pale and slender thread of water which comes down, um, but the issue of the dark lake was beneath the earth into many endless caverns. So we have, like, the, the birthplace of the uh, elves leads down into these dark caverns, and down there dwells to the wizard, fathomless hollow, are those places. Um, if hollow were a noun and fathomless were an adjective, that would already be pretty cool. But the fact that hollow is an adjective and fathomless an adverb makes it five times as cool minimum. Um, and fathomless hollow are those places. Fantastic. Um, but their doors have long been sealed and none know now the entry. Um, classic Tolkien untold story mythic element, right? Uh, you know, that idea of somewhere in the world lie the long-sealed doors of two that have been lost, and but, but the idea, right, the concept of those caverns into which the waters of awakening flowed, right? The sort of the resting place of the waters of awakening at the, you know, it's like at the very roots of, you know, the genesis of elves on Earth, um, uh, you know, but that those have that those were a dark and ruled over by the quite sinister, but not necessarily one hundred percent evil Lord of Gloaming. Um, you know, the kind of ambivalence of his character um, is it. You know, it's you know, and, uh, man. I mean, this is just uh, kind of pretty cool, mind blowing stuff. I think anyway. Um, and I love these. Con- I, I love encountering these concepts in the Book of Lost Tales. Even these things, you know, these concepts which are not really going to be manifested. And I don't want to simply trace, you know, their ancestors in the Silmarillion. As I said, it's really neat to see what he's doing here, um, you know, on its own. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Brian says this must be the lake, uh, the the lake in the caverns that Gandalf and the Balrog fell into. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe uh, it, it might be kind of an interesting uh, memory of it, right? Um, uh, 
the juxtaposition of Gandalf and the Balrog with the Waters of Awakening. It's a it's a stimulating juxtaposition, Brian, uh, at the very least. Um, but uh, anyway, more. So okay. Um, all right. This is from the actual tale, not from uh, not from the uh, um, the outline summaries. Suddenly about him there gushed the sweetest odors of the earth, nor were more lovely fragrances ever upon the airs of Valinor, and he stood drinking in the scents with deep delight, and amid the fragrance of evening flowers came the deep odors that many pines loosen upon the midnight airs. Suddenly afar off down in the dark woods there lay above the valley's bottom a nightingale. In the dark woods, that lay... Okay, sorry, I misspoke. I knew, I knew I made a mistake somewhere. Suddenly, afar off down in the dark woods that lay above the valley's bottom, a nightingale sang, and others palely afar off. And Nguyen well-nigh swooned at the loveliness of that dreaming place, and he knew that he had trespassed upon Murminalda, or the Vale of Sleep, where it is ever the time of first quiet dark beneath young stars, and no wind blows, where it is ever... The time of first quiet dark beneath young stars, and no wind blows. That's a story by itself. Right? I don't need anything else. Just tell me where it is ever the time of first quiet dark beneath young stars, and no wind blows. How could any story convey more than that? Um, and can I also add, I didn't need a translation of the name Murminalda. It's Veil of Sleep, right? Uh, the, uh, the, the, um, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the suggestion of the sounds of Murminalda, uh, just awesome. Um, now did Nguyen descend deeper into the veil treading softly by reason of some unknown wonder that possessed him, and lo, beneath the trees he saw the warm dusk, full of sleeping forms, and some were twined in each other's arms, and some lay sleeping gently all alone, and Nguyen stood and marveled, scarce breathing. Oh, by the way, I almost skipped. I love uh, palely as a description of the songs of nightingales, Others answered, other nightingales, presumably, answered palely, afar off. Love that. Love that. Dime thinks that phrase about the uh, the first quiet dark beneath young stars sounds like Fairbanks, Alaska in December. <laughs> perhaps, Dime. Uh, perhaps. Um, one thing, of course, we can notice here, I'd be interested to hear other things that, that, that strike you here. Um, what we're getting, apparently, is this glimpse of the paradisical awakening of men, right? This is sort of proto-Edenic, right? We get these earthly paradise, you know, a bunch of earthly paradise kind of cues here, right? Um, As the context in which the men were first supposed to wake up. Um, And we get a marveling but transgressing witness to them. Right, which is interesting. Um, also, I would note the uh, um, 
Uh, the uh, yeah, Arthur was just pointing this out too. Why specify that some are couple, couples and some not even in sleep? Uh, is this a reference to predestined romance? Yeah, actually, I think so. Um, we've already gotten that. Remember, um, we've gotten that in the Cottage of Oz play. Um, that reference to two human souls which in sleep, in childhood meet in their childish dreams at the cottage of play, right? And might recognize each other when they meet later on in adult life. Especially then adding on to that the explicitly autobiographical elements, right? As a a poem clearly about himself and Edith, right? That Tolkien wrote in the Cottage of Lost Play poem. Um, where he was applying that to, you know, to himself and his beloved. Um, so, yeah, Arthur, that seems to be a thing uh, in this early uh, in this early conception. Um, that's that's interesting, right? That's uh, that's really interesting. Um, Brian Yoder says that uh, Tolkien's worst of the use of the word "pale" has always intrigued me. I agree; he uses it in some really interesting ways. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, it's it is fascinating. It says it's not always clear what it, what exactly it's supposed to mean, but it always seems to give more meaning to what it is describing. Anyway, I agree. Um, uh, in this case, a sort of distant, soft, quiet response is evoked in my mind. Yeah, um, yeah, that you know that 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 the the sound of those nightingales is to a sound what pale is to color, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Sarah King says uh, uh, she doesn't know why, but the the eeriness, maybe the numinousness would be a better word, of this scene affected her more than anything else in the book. And the story just ends, right? Yeah, um, this... uh, It's it's tough, because this tale is off to a wonderful start. I mean, this is just uh, fantastic. Um... But, um, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's, well, yeah, Brian says it's sort of less meaning and more evocation. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's, uh, it is evocative, um, perhaps in that sense more than meaningful. I would accept that, that distinction. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm almost hesitant to do much more sort of discussion of this. That is to say more, uh, you know, because it's hard to say thinking about this as a story and speculating about where it was going to go and, and, and what this stuff is setting up within the narrative that's going to unfold. I don't know, you know, there's a lot of cues we don't have in, inter- you know, in, in trying to interpret that. And instead, I'm sort of just, I just kind of want to leave it, you know, as, uh, um, as evocative as it is. So let's move on to the uh, outlines. So this is from the B outline, that is the, 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 you know, the earlier one, the first one. The wizard Tuvo told Nguyen... Again, this is now Christopher Tolkien summarizing, recall. Uh, the wizard Tuvo told Nguyen... Remember, it was Tuvo first, and then he revised it to two in the D version. The wizard Tuvo told Nguyen that the sleepers he had found were the new children of Iluvatar, and that they were waiting for light. He forbade any of the elves to wake them or to visit those places, being frightened of the wrath of Iluvatar. But despite this, Nuin went there often and watched, sitting on a rock. Once he stumbled against a sleeper who stirred but did not wake. At last, overcome by curiosity, he awakened two, named Ermon and Elmir, 
They were dumb and very much afraid, but he taught them much of the Ocaran tongue, for which reason he is called Nuin, father of speech. Then came the first dawn, and Ermon and Elmir, alone of men, saw the first sun rise in the west and come over to the eastward haven. Now men came forth and from Mormonalda as a host of sleepy children. What do you notice? What strikes you about this passage? Nguyen, father of speech, is one of the things that I find really interesting about this. Um, in his summaries, um, Christopher Tolkien points out that, of course, there's this emphasis on Nguyen's transgressiveness, right? That he is um, he's not supposed to go there, um, and he's not supposed to interact with them, but he transgresses twice. He transgresses by going back, he transgresses more seriously by actually waking two of them and beginning to teach them speech. Um, Arthur says, uh, it reminds him of Prometheus. Richard was just making the same, uh, uh, the same point. Um, it does sound kind of Promethean, doesn't it? Um, but remember also, Christopher Tolkien in his commentary points out that it's interesting, you know, Christopher Tolkien considers it noteworthy that Tolkien has explicitly said that Iluvatar implanted knowledge in the Quendi, right? That is, they, they, they could speak um, from the beginning. Iluvatar taught them language, or, you know, made them with the knowledge of language already. Um, but um, that wasn't true of the men. They couldn't speak. They didn't have any language. Or they didn't have any language until Nguyen taught it to them. That is, um, maybe that was his job. Maybe it's not so much of a transgression after all. He's transgressing Tu's command, right? But maybe it was Tu's command that was wrong. Maybe. Right? Um, and in particular, of course, I can't help but think of the plan that it appears that Iluvatar had for the children of Iluvatar all along, right? The elves come first, and he gives them language, and they're supposed to go through the whole world, and then the Valar are like, forget about that, we're collecting them all into Valinor, right? And we're going to keep them over here and prevent them from going back and um, uh, distributing them into, you know, to, to, the, to the other... Um, to all the other people. And so what what would have happened had the elves not gone to Valinor? Had the Valar not done what really seems like the wrong thing and taken them to Valinor in the first place, well, there would have been elves there to teach them language, right? As Nguyen does. Um, Nancy Fosberg points out that Tu was afraid of the wrath of Luvatar. I agree. That's one of the passages which makes him seem like not just a bad guy. You know, he's not like... This is what Iluvatar wants. Therefore, let us thwart him. You know, he, he doesn't sound e- extremely Melko-like uh, in that passage. Though he's still, um, I, you know, I don't trust him. Um, but um, um, but anyway, you know, I, I think um, I think that there's sort of you know, I, we, and we can't draw firm conclusions about this, but I do think potentially we can see. Um, a sense in which 
Nuin, in his transgression of Two's command, is actually doing what he was supposed to do. You know, that teaching language to the men was... Seems like maybe that was kind of the plan. Why did you put the firstborn there first in the first place? Um, and then have the secondborn, you know, be kind of depending upon them for language. Well, you know, okay, that might work. A um, couple other observations. Um, uh, um, yeah, good. Uh, Tom Hillman is recalling, of course, that in The Lord of the Rings we're told that the elves in the beginning did a lot of going around and waking things up, and uh, in the case of the trees, teaching them to speak, right? Yeah, yeah, that seems to be a thing, right? It's, it's, it's a very elvish thing to do. They always wanted to talk to everything, did the old elves, right, says Treebeard. Um, yes, apparently even sleeping, apparently gigantic human children. Several of you have pointed uh, to the fact that uh, uh, you know Don was talking about how this the description here evokes the cottage of lost play frame um, with the with the dreaming children um, and I think Timothy Fisher says it really well. The theme of childhood's first wonder of things seems to be central throughout the book of lost tales. Um, yeah, I agree um, and um, you know it's another thing that makes me think of how fascinating it might have been to have gotten this story right after Arundel, right? But anyway, um, there's me again, speculating. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, here's um, the another story from the B text. A servant of Melko named Fukil, or Fungli, entered the world, and coming among men perverted them, so that they fell treacherously upon the Ilkarins. There followed the Battle of Palasor, in which the people of Eremon fought beside Nuin. According to A, the Fays and those men that aided them were defeated, but B calls it an undecided battle. And the men corrupted by Fungli fled away and became wild and savage tribes, worshipping Fungli and Melko. Thereafter, in A only, Palasor was possessed by Fungli and his hosts of Naugloth, or dwarves. In the early writings, the dwarves are always portrayed as an evil people. From this outline, it is seen that the corruption of certain men in the beginning of their days by the agency of Melko was a feature in the earliest phase of the mythology. Okay. Um, so we have Fukul or Fangli and his corruption of men. One thing here, again, that I notice, um, this seems to suggest another really kind of deep idea of Tolkien's, just, I say, deep in how often it's repeated in uh, Tolkien's works, this idea of um, the men corrupted by Fungli fled away and became wild and savage tribes worshipping Fungli and Melko. Um, sound like the Oathbreakers, the Easterlings, um, you know, the Southrons. Um, that's something that we get um, again and again, this idea of human beings corrupted and corrupted by the tribe and then, you know, going off into this, um, into, you know, a distant realm in which the corruption that has been implanted within their culture just sort of festers and continues and undermines their entire culture after that. That is a concept um, which is a part of Tolkien's mythology, um, apparently, from beginning to end here. Um, notice also, um, you know, one of the other things that I think is really fascinating here, 
we get, um, in one sense, of course, we're getting a repetition. That is, the fact that we have corruption and a battle between them, we're already beginning to see the pattern of a, a pattern of repeating events, right? Just as Melko came among the Noldoli and whispered among them things to them, leading to their own corruption and then and the kinslaying um, and the rebellion against the Valar. So here we have now Melkor's agent, right? We're 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 a step sort of down and further removed from Melko, but we've got we've got Fuku or Fangli coming among the men and corrupting some of them, leading to what is not exactly kinslaying, of course, in the same way, um, but to this um, unjust and unprovoked treacherous um, uh, you know, internecine battle between uh, between the Ilkarins and uh, uh, and these men. Um, but also notice that we get that um, that distinct um, that distinct issue with um, the people of Aramon fought beside Nuin, right? Um, that even here we, we don't have the corruption of mankind as a whole. Um, this idea of some men, and presumably the minority of men, um, you get the impression, again, it's hard to say details from this kind of general summary, but you get the impression that uh, the majority of men were perverted and only a remnant um, remain faithful, um, and you know, so so that that concept uh, seems to be a really important one here uh, as well. Um, look at the uh, um, the treachery of men as we see it in the later outline. This is the D text. Fungkil, with the dwarves and goblins, went among men and bred estrangement between them and the elves, and many men aided the dwarves. The folk of Eromon alone stood by the fairies in the first war of goblins and elves. Goblins is here an emendation from dwarves, and that, of, and that from men, which is called the War of Palasor. Nuin died at the hands of the goblins through the treachery of men. Many kindreds of men were driven into the eastern deserts and southern forests, whence came dark and savage peoples. So we still have the dark and savage peoples in the eastern deserts and southern forests, instead of eastern forests and southern deserts, as we will eventually get later on. Um, we still have the element of treachery. Here, notice now personalized, not just the sort of much more impersonal betrayal of the Ilkarins, right, by, in, you know, as a whole, by the, by the men, but rather of Nguyen in particular the elf who has been reaching out to them most from the beginning, uh, and he is now going to be treacherously slain by the men. I'm also fascinated by the emendations in the middle of the passage. That is, um, you know, the full text of Tolkien's outline reads, according to what Christopher Tolkien tells us here, the folk of Aramon alone stood by the fairies in the Battle of Palasor, in the War of Palasor, which is the first war of men and elves cross out, of dwarves and elves, cross out, of goblins and elves, right? That's what he says the progression is. So, so he takes the idea of men and elves, right, the war between men and elves, that was in the original outline, and his first impulse is to say, no, dwarves. This is the first time we get the wars, the wars between dwarves, dwarves and elves. In other words, in almost the very first time the dwarves are mentioned uh, here, we get them warring with the elves. Now we have to be careful. 
because I've said the first time the dwarves are mentioned, they're the first time the dwarves are mentioned in this book, but they're not the first time dwarves are mentioned in Tolkien's works. We already have the character of Meme the Dwarf uh, in Turambar, which he's already written. Um, so you know, we have to be a little bit careful about this. Um, but nevertheless, um, they, um, um, th- it's, uh, it's fascinating that we do have that enmity of dwarves and elves uh, going way, way back uh, in Tolkien's thinking here, before he finally settles on the wars of goblins and elves. Um, okay. More. Back to the B outline, the earlier outline. <clears throat> now appears for the first time Maedros, son of Feanor. Previously, in the tale of the theft of Melko, the name was given to Feanor's grandfather. Maedros, guided... That is the name Maedros, of course. <clears throat> Maedros, guided by Ilkarins, led a host into the hills, either to seek for the jewels or to search the dwellings of Melko. This should perhaps read search for the dwellings of Melko, the reading of C, but they were driven back with slaughter from the doors of Angamandi, and Maidros himself was taken alive, tortured, because he would not reveal the secret arts of the Noldoli in the making of jewels, and sent back to the, to the gnomes maimed. In A, which still had Nolome rather than Feanor die in the waters of Ascon, it was Feanor himself who led the host against Melko, and it was Feanor who was captured, tortured, and maimed. Then the seven sons of Feanor swore an oath of enmity forever against any that should hold the Silmarils. Um, fascinating. Nancy asks, did we have goblins before this? Mm, yeah, we do. Um... But uh, but again, not in the Book of Lost Tales, really, yet. But um, but yes, we do get goblins um, in uh, in the earlier stories, the earlier written, later appearing stories. Um, uh, okay, so what do we see here? What's interesting about this? Well, of course, um, first of all, I love the fact that Mydra. <laughs> I was about to say, I, was about to, I love the fact that Maedros is being tortured. Let me rephrase. I, 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 I like the idea that what um, Melko is trying to extort from Maedros is the secret of jewel making. Right? Give me the recipe for the Silmarils for crying out loud. Um, uh, that is really interesting. You know, it, uh, it, it, it again. It still kind of puts. Remember how Melko was miffed, right? You know how he was slighted. You know he he you know he uh, he felt like he'd been uh, you know he'd been stiffed in the uh, in the jewel distribution uh, by the Noldor. Uh, excuse me, the Noldoli, um, and um, he's now really just interested in the recipe. Um, he's interested in the procedure. Um, teach me how to do this, right? Tell me how jewels are made. Um, again, it's more of a like a guild uh, discussion than uh, than about simply his desire for the Silmarils themselves. Um, uh, and notice even like that 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 they're seeking for the jewels, you know, the Silmarils, probably and presumably primarily, but it doesn't say that, right? At least not there, um, not in the A outline, um, which is remember it's the short one that came before B the primary early one, um, to search for the jewels, it might just he might just be referring to the Silmarils. Um, but remember the Noldoli didn't talk like that back uh, you know, in the in the darkening of Valinor. They instead were 
talking about all their jewels, and they don't know that Ungoliant's eaten most of them yet. Um, so I, I'm wondering if that's not even necessarily a Silmaril-specific thing. Um, I have to admit that Feanor's initial death in a tragic boating accident on the waters of Ascon, I find a little unimpressive. Um, I mean, it's kind of cool, um, but... Uh, um, yeah, yeah, I, I um, yeah, uh, it's, it's not, it's not, you know, the idea of having Fanor being the one who's captured, tortured, and maimed is really interesting, especially in light of what comes next. Notice, the seven sons of Fanor swear an oath of enmity forever against any that should hold the Silmarils. The oath of the sons of Fanor is still probably going to be a bad idea. But notice the context in which it's born. This is the first reference to the Oath of the Sons of Feanor. Um, this is a lot more... Uh, this is a lot more understandable, right? Um, here we have a group of people who have just suffered... Wrong, I mean, they've suffered wrong from Melko already, right? But either Maedros or Feanor himself have just been captured and mutilated, and they're swearing vengeance, right? It becomes an oath of vengeance specifically against um, against Melko um, for what he did, right? I mean, this is about the... Uh, this is about the, And Arthur points out that Fanor doesn't appear to... doesn't obviously participate in this oath, right? But again, it seems to me much more understandable. when The way we get it in the Silmarillion, right? We get, you know, sort of Fanor just kind of coming out with it. Not exactly unprovoked. I mean, the guy's upset. Some bad stuff has just been happening. But it's not in reaction to something like this, right? You know, it, it's not, you know, you took our stuff from us. You did, you know, you you killed Fanor's dad, um, you know, in, in taking these things from us. Now you've taken and captured either Fanor himself or Fanor's son. We're not taking it anymore. Right, um, it's 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 it is on Melko. Right, we we came here to fetch our stuff before, um, but you know we also just kind of wanted to see the Great Lands. Well, now my friend, like we are coming after you, and we are not stopping. That's um, um, that's uh, I think really um, a fascinating context to the oath. You know, in its uh, in its first manifestation here. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm kind of hustling through. There are only a couple more passages that I, that I want to look at. We can't avoid, tempted as I am, because it's it's horribly sad. We can't avoid the uh, uh, battle of unnamed uh, of unnumbered tears. Early version here. The hosts of Melko now approached the camp of the gnomes by Sirion, and they fled south and dwelt then at Gorphalon, where they made the acquaintance of men, both good and bad, but especially those of Ermon's folk, the good guys. And an embassy was sent to Tuvo, to Tu, that is, um, to, Tin, to Tinwellent, that's, that is the guy who will later become Thingol, um, the guy who is married to the woman who will later become Melian, who will later be named Melian, um, father of Tinuvio, all that stuff is still, is already true of Tinwellent. And you remember he was also one of the ones who was one of the three ambassadors who was taken over to Valinor and saw the trees and everything. All those things are still already true of, of Tinwiland. Um, and to Ermon. 
A great host was arrayed of gnomes, ilkarins, and men, and Fingolma, that is Nolome, uh, the chief of the, of the gnomes, marshaled it in the valley of the fountains, afterwards called the Vale of Weeping Waters. But Melko himself went into the tents of men and beguiled them, and some of them fell treacherously on the rear of the gnomes, even as Melko's host attacked them. Others Melko pursued to abandon their persuaded, sorry, to abandon their friends, and these, together with others that he led astray with mists and wizardries, he beguiled into the land of shadows. <clears throat> with this cross reference, <clears throat> uh, the reference in the tale. <clears throat> Sorry, just spontaneously lost my voice. <clears throat> of the coming of the elves to the shutting of men in Hisalome by Melko. Then took place the terrible battle of unnumbered tears. The children of Urin, alone of men, fought to the last, and none save two messengers came out of the fray. Turgon and a great regiment, seeing the day lost, turned and cut their way out, and rescued a part of the women and children. Turgon was pursued... And there is a reference to Mablon the Ilkarin sacrifice to save the host. Mydros and the other sons of Feanor quarreled with Turgon, because they wanted the leadership, according to A, and departed into the south. The remainder of the survivors and fugitives were surrounded, and swore allegiance to Melko, and he was wrathful, because he could not discover whither Turgon fled. Um... Yeah, yeah. Good. Oh, sorry. Uh, last comment on the Oath of Feanor that uh, Brian Fatterini says. It's, it's, it is ironically less dramatic, but more to my mind tragic, because it wasn't sworn in bad faith in the same way. It was born of justifiable aggrievement rather than the blasphemous pride of Feanor. Thank you for saying very well what I was saying very stumblingly, Brian. I absolutely agree with you. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, the personal involvement of Melko is really interesting. This is, of course, I think that we can see, this seems to be operating in the same way as, you know, what I described before, sort of the diminution of the, the, the Valar, the way they have made themselves small in this narrative, the way that we're kind of looking down on them as primary movers of this. So just as we don't get the Valar as merely the presences that live there in Valinor and we don't really meet them directly too much and we don't hear from them directly too much, rather we just, we're focused instead on sort of the level below them and hearing about their councils and the things that they do, um, so too with Melkor in the Silmarillion, right? We get him remote in distance, he enters Thangorodrim and only comes out twice, right? Once, um to uh, get briefly schooled by Fingolfin and then a second time uh, in chains. Um, <clears throat> so that's, uh, that's, uh, that's fascinating. Nancy says, I find myself wondering what Milko could possibly say to them that could convince them to attack the elves. Um, yeah, now, you know, the, the idea of him as deceiver, right, misleading them, um, and, uh, uh, you know, tricking some of them into attacking, um, persuading the others to abandon altogether. Um, in essence, the role of Melko, Melko playing the role of tempter explicitly here among the humans um, is, I, I think, certainly uh, um, uh, is certainly important. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good, yeah. Um, I 
Brian is uh, saying again, they always got the impression that uh, um, Melko refused to come out because he was a coward in the Silmarillion. Um, here he's he's a much more active and therefore terrifying presence. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, notice, of course, the children of Urin are there from the very beginning. Um, we have the you know the 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 elements both of. Turgon's, Turgon's retreat, which is made even, which is made her, more heroic in this in this first version, right? It's it is a heroic retreat, made heroic by the reference to the saving of the women and children, right? These guys are not running away from battle. Um, this is a difficult and tactical retreat, and it achieves an important and merciful errand. Um, that seems to be that seems to be important here. Remember also, I didn't put up a passage about this, but of course we recall that Turgon is a way more important figure in the early versions of the mythology, right? Remember those references to the prophecies at Turgon's birth? Um, That passage in the published Silmarillion that says that back in Valinor... uh, Remember when we're told, right before the fall of Gondolin, when we're told that Melkor was really obsessed with finding Gondolin, right? Why was he obsessed about finding Gondolin? It's not just... I mean, you could say, hey, you know, Melkor, you've captured 90% of Beleriand. What are you going to do now? And he's like, obsess about the 10%, you know, the, the little bit I haven't uh, uh, it, it captured yet. But we're, expl- we're given the reason for that, right? That even back in Valinor, whenever he had, whenever, you know, when he had seen Turgon, son of Fingolfin, again, I'm using the waiter stuff here, you know, a shadow had passed across his heart. Right, and that's that's um, puzzling, right? That puzzled me for years. It puzzled me until I read the history of Middle Earth series. I had no idea, like, why? I mean, it's like, oh, you know, again within the published Silmarillion, it's like because he was destined to be the grandfather of Aaron. I mean, and again, the explanation we're given is that because that through him, you know, uh, uh, doom would come to Melkor, and I was always like very indirectly, you know, I mean, okay, but that's, in the early, that that passage in the published Silmarillion is clearly a remnant from these early stages. Look, there's me doing critfic again, but I'm sorry, the manuscript evidence actually really points to that here. Um, Turgon is very explicitly going to be connected with the downfall. He's going to be the one who's going to defeat Noko at the end. Now, we don't get there in Book of Lost Tales. Um, but uh, in the next generation of the Silmarillion material, um, well, if you don't count the ways of Beleriand, um, when he goes to writing the contiguous narrative of this stuff in the the beginning of the overview Silmarillion concept in uh, uh, in the late twenties, early thirties, that's when we will see we'll get some information about where this was headed and about Turgon's future defeat of uh, of Melkor in battle. Um, last one. The later version of Unnumbered Tears. Certain men suborned by Melko went among the camp as minstrels and betrayed it. Melko fell upon them at early dawn in a gray rain, and the terrible battle of Unnumbered Tears followed, of which no full tale is told, for no gnome will ever speak of it. In the margin here, my father wrote, Melko himself was there, in the earlier outline, Melko himself entered the camp of his enemies. In the battle, Nolome was isolated and slain, and the orcs cut out his heart, but Turgon rescued his body and his heart, and it became his emblem, 
Nearly half of all the gnomes and men who fought there were slain. Men fled, and the sons of Urin alone stood fast until they were slain, but Urin was taken. Turgon was terrible in his wrath, and his great battalion hewed its way out of the fight by sheer prowess. Melko sent his host of Balrogs after them, on foot, and Mablon the Ilkarin died to save them when pursued. Turgon fled south along Syrian, gathering women and children from the camps. Notice, Mablon the Ilkarin could not have made a desperate rearguard stand against the host of Balrogs that were coming after them if the Balrogs were flying in pursuit of them. No last stand by a rearguard would have been possible in that case, now would it? Turgon fled south along Syrian, gathering women and children from the camps, and aided by the magic of the stream, escaped into a secret place and was lost to Melko. The sons of Feanor came up too late and found a stricken field. They slew the spoilers who were left, and burying Nolome, they built the greatest cairn in the world over him and the gnomes. It was called the Hill of Death. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, the Hill of Death. I love the, and again, I know this. This is just a summary by Christopher Tolkien of an outline. You know, this is this is not a, this is not even really something written directly by Tolkien. We're not getting Tolkien's direct words here all the time, and uh, and it's just a sketch. It's not, but I love. The hints to, it is a plot sketch, and this plot sketch seems to me to have at least one really attractive um, piece of so, sort of element of shape or structure to it. I love the fact that we have the gnomes, no gnome will ever speak of the Battle of Unnumbered Tears, but gnomes, the sons of Feanor, built the greatest cairn in the world over Nolome and possibly, probably, the other gnomes. Um, that was called the Hill of Death. The Hill of Death is the testament to the Battle of Unnumbered Tears, which the gnomes left. They won't tell the story, but they built the monument um, to commemorate it. And that's that. the way that sort of the one is mentioned at the beginning and the end, uh, and the other comes in at the end. Um, I like that. You know, does that, um, does that suggest that you know, that kind of conceit of we don't know the full story but here's the memorial um, was going to be a kind of a framing mechanism for this within the narrative I don't know um, but uh, but I think it's, it's pretty cool um, notice Turgon's stock is rising here, right? Turgon was terrible in his wrath and his great battalion hewed its way out of the fight by sheer prowess greater emphasis on the valor of uh, the uh, the gnomes, you know the 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 the, the people of Turgon, right? Turgon is not leaving the battle because uh, he's some kind of wimp, certainly. Uh, people will also notice not just, of course, the lesson which I can never forbear to reinforce that Balrogs obviously don't have wings, but rather notice how there's a big host of them. Um, <clears throat> This is one example that we see, of course, we see this much more emphatically uh, in the, the, the Lost Tales version of the Fall of Gondolin. Um, but uh, uh, Balrogs were a dime a dozen. Um, they were shock troops in, um, in, in the Book of Lost Tales world. Um, they're, they're not <clears throat> the uh, 
small elite core that they come to be later on. There's uh, lots and lots of Balrogs. Um, other observations, thoughts, questions? I should let you guys go uh, pretty soon here. Um, let's see. Um, yeah, Brian, I agree. The way in which the Hill of Death is used as a monument to the battle by the good guys, in contrast to the Hill of Slain being a pile of corpses, yet built in mockery of the good guys, right? Um, and, you know, and Brian, in a sense, I do like the later version better. That is, I think that the Hill of Slain is a richer idea, a richer symbol, because, of course, it's it's something... It's not just a... A, a, a commemorative monument, but it becomes a commemorative monument, right? It is a um, uh, it is a monument built in 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 in, in scorn and mockery by the enemy, um, just a pile of corpses, um, but it becomes sort of uh, uh, you know sort of conceptually transformed into. Uh, a mon- you know, an unforgettable monument, and the image of the green grass growing up out of it sort of suggests, you know, sort of the not exactly the hallowing of the place, but uh, um, you know, again, the way uh, life and, uh, and 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 color spring from it, it doesn't remain barren like many other things that we see, other many other desolations in in Tolkien that we've seen uh, um, that we've seen. Uh, uh, happen, but not there. And again, so, so I, I really like the Hill of Slain, um, but uh, but Brian, I agree that you know that 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 contrast is is very interesting. I agree, Nancy, that the business with Nolamay's heart is kind of gruesome. Yeah, um, the idea that uh, they cut out not just that they cut out his heart, but that his heart is recaptured, like. That is my dad's internal organs. Give me my dad's internal organs, and then he's going to bring back and he's going to make it into his own symbol. His, you know, this the the on Turgon's shield will be um, the, uh, the 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 blazon of the burning heart. Um, yeah, that's a little. Uh, uh, it's, well, it's pretty remarkable. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Yana asks, doesn't Tuor kill dozens of Balrogs at Gondolin? Yep, yeah, uh-huh. Oh, yeah, they, uh, they kill Balrogs all over the place there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, all right, well, I should... Uh, I, I've kept you guys late tonight. I should let you go. We have one more class session uh, on the Book of Lost Tales, and our final class session will be a special bonus section where we're going to talk about Tolkien's early languages, and I will have a special guest uh, for that. My special guest is uh, longtime Tolkien professor, listener, uh, uh, Andrew Higgins, uh, current Mythgard student, uh, and uh, who is now... Uh, been is is in the final process of completing his PhD dissertation on Tolkien's early languages, and in particular, he's been immersed in the Book of Lost Tales period, looking at the development not not the development of the stories primarily, but the development of Tolkien's languages. So um, he knows much more about uh, about Tolkien's languages than I do, and so I wanted to bring him in, um, and we're going to have a talk about. Um, it, we'll talk some about the names in the Book of Lost Tales. Um, I will have him sort of explain to us 
the the kind you know we I I spent some time today looking back at what appear you know based on the evidence that we have here um, you know sort of the, the the history of Tolkien's creative thought as far as his writing and his fiction is concerned. Andrew's going to walk us through. Um, the development of his languages and how this works and the relationship between that uh, and his stories. Uh, so uh, that's uh, that's going to be that's going to be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, uh, recommended reading, yeah. Read the appendix, um, and, and I, I mean it. You don't have to necessarily read the whole thing in order, but at least flip through the appendix on names. Um, uh, and uh, and you know start looking you know maybe you can pick out ones that seem to you particularly interesting, or you know ones that you had questions about, or ones that seem to be related to each other. Um, you know I'm not going to quiz you on the appendix on names, but do look through the history the the that appendix, and we will because uh, um, uh, we're gonna we're gonna you know probably talk about some of those things uh, when we uh, when I talk with Andrew next week. Um, I will also mention. I'm probably going to have to shift the time, Andrew, of course, uh, and, uh, you know, Yana and all of the other Europeans will cheer. Uh, Andrew, of course, lives in London, so I'm probably not going to hold class at 9.30 at night uh, uh, for his sake. So, uh, you know, I've scheduled it for early in the, earlier in the day for late afternoon, Eastern time. Um, I may, we, you know, we may end up shuffling that time a little bit depending on Andrew's schedule for next week. Um, but I'll certainly I'll announce that. And if you just register for that session, just go to the page and register for the uh, the uh, the go-to webinar session uh, for next week. And then you'll be automatically notified about the change of time when I uh, when I when I plug that in. So anyway, thanks very much, everybody. Thanks for joining me, and I will see you guys next week for finishing up the Book of Lost Tales before we get ready for Dune. Um, do go check out the Dune page and start signing up for uh, for that and spreading the word about that again. Uh, thanks very much, everybody. Good night.